Working from home, ugh. late afternoon is dragging into evening. Each video call melting into one, stretching and melting like stringy mozzarella on a piping hot pizza delivered by Uber Eats. And those video tiles on screen are tiles of succulent ham wallowing on that melty mozzarella bed. Search Pizza Hut for easy ordering on Uber Eats. Don't drool, you're on camera. Check the Uber Eats app for geographical restrictions and availability. November 1965, Mansfield, Ohio. 14-year-old Mary Ellen Dina walked the short walk to get some change from the laundromat. Little did she know this innocent errand for her mother would result in her brutal death and one of the most high-profile manhunts in United States history, spanning four decades. Lester Eubanks was serving a life sentence in prison when he was given permission in December 1973 to spend the day out of jail for good behaviour to do some Christmas shopping at the local mall. He would not return to the agreed meeting place and would disappear without a trace, never to be seen again. This is Mary's story. It was 1965 when Mary Ellen Diener, a 14-year-old in Mansfield, left a laundromat to get change and encountered her killer, Lester Eubanks. The son of a preacher, he bludgeoned the girl to death in what appeared to be an attempted rape. Then he confessed. It was an open and shut case. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Up until this night, 45 years ago in 1973, prison guards took Eubanks to a mall in Columbus to go Christmas shopping, a reward for good behavior. And he walked out, never to be seen again, something Diener's family will never understand. And it was just, poof, just disappeared. When they kind of detected our, my mom, um, we couldn't believe it. You know, Christmas shopping... Really? From death row? Christmas shopping? Mary Ellen Diener was born July 27, 1951, in Mansfield, Ohio. She was one of seven children born to her mother, Cassie Jones. She lived with her mother, her stepfather, and five out of six of her siblings. The eldest of the children, Myrtle, was 19 years old at the time this story takes place, and she was already married with a child of her own. Now, as is the norm with large families, each child had their own daily chores that they needed to do to help their mother keep the household running smoothly. While the boys went to the markets, took out the trash and did minor repairs around the home, the girls cleaned, made the beds and did the laundry, all the while taking turns so no one was doing more than their fair share. 14-year-old Mary in particular took her responsibilities seriously. Mary would be described by those who knew and loved her as a bright and quiet teen with the biggest heart. She loved school and got good grades. Her sister Brenda would remember Mary as a giggly happy girl who made every task fun, even mundane household chores. Mary loved her family and was fiercely protective over her younger siblings. Mary wanted to be a nun when she grew up because, in her eyes, that was the best way to help people in need and share her faith. Her stepfather was a pastor and Mary was definitely influenced by him and looked up to him as her role model. 
She wanted to grow up and help people just like she saw him do. Saturday, November 14, 1965. It was 14-year-old Mary Ellen Deena and her 12-year-old sister Mary Sue's turn to do the family's laundry. However, when they finished doing the washing cycle, they realised that their dryer was broken. It wasn't turning on, so they weren't able to complete their chore. They went to their mother Cassie to find out what they were supposed to do now. Cassie gave the sisters money for a cab to the local laundromat, half-hour laundromat. She didn't want the girls to walk, even though it was only a block or two away from their home on Springmill Street, because it was 10pm and dark outside. But she wasn't worried about sending the girls because their grandmother, Love Williams, she only lived next door to the laundromat, and they could go to her if they needed help. Mansfield, Ohio was seen as quite a safe area. Mansfield is about 70 miles outside of Columbus, Ohio, and in 1965, it was a really small town with a low crime rate. It was a place where you could send your child out to do errands for you without any concern for their safety. Everyone knew everyone, and they would watch out for each other. Unfortunately, this is all the perfect formula for a true crime story, and Mansfield would realise their tiny, close-knit community was not immune to the horrors that they had only previously read about in the newspaper. Mary and Brenda arrived at the half-hour laundromat less than five minutes later, and everything seemed to be going fine. The girls had the dryer going and were dancing to the music playing and giggling and making the most of their Saturday night. However, they had more laundry than they had change for the machines. Mary being the responsible older sister, she insisted that Brenda stay behind while she walked to the other laundromat about five minutes away. And Brenda, who looked up to her older sister, she did what she was told. And she waited and waited. She waited for hours. But Mary never returned. Not knowing what else to do, Brenda went to her grandmother's house to tell her what happened. Love was concerned. Maybe Mary had gotten hurt and couldn't walk back. She told Brenda to stay behind while she looked for Mary around the area. And that's when she saw a gathering of detectives and police cars blocking off a nearby alleyway. She knew immediately it was her granddaughter. The girl's grandmother, Love Williams, looked past the police cars and detectives. That's when she saw Mary. She was bloodied and beaten. She had been shot twice in the stomach. Her head had been bashed in with a brick. Her head had been hit so badly that her skull was shattered. Some of the coins for the laundromat were still in her lifeless hands, while the others were scattered nearby. The medical examiner would later determine that there was evidence of an attempted sexual assault. I cannot imagine how Love would have been feeling in this moment. She was worried Mary was hurt, but never in her darkest nightmares could she ever imagine she would find her beloved granddaughter deceased and murdered in the worst possible way. Police would determine Mary had been shot with a 38 caliber bullet. Detectives went to the hardware store in Mansfield, the only one to sell ammo, and looked through their sales records. One sale in particular immediately caught their suspicions. 22-year-old Lester Edward Eubanks. 
Eubanks had previously been arrested and charged twice before for sexual assault, and he was currently out on a hefty bond for an unrelated attempted rape charge. Eubanks had lived in Mansfield his whole life. Eubanks was considered attractive by societal standards, and he was well-dressed. Everyone who knew him would describe him as weird or a loner. No one really knew him well, or wanted to for that matter. Eubanks would walk around the streets of Mansfield with nunchucks in his hands. He would swing them around. Local residents were scared of him, and it is completely understandable, especially given his history of violent sexual crimes, but no one thought he was capable of a brutal child murder. After interviewing locals who had placed Eubanks in the same street Mary was found around the same time she would have been walking back to the half-hour laundromat, that and the ammo purchase. Police were confident that Eubanks was their guy. So the following day, Sunday, November 15, 1965, just before midnight, and just 24 hours after Mary was horrifically murdered, police would arrest Eubanks for first-degree murder. It didn't take long after questioning began that Eubanks confessed to everything. Working from home, late afternoon is dragging into evening, each video call melting into one, stretching and melting, like stringy mozzarella on a piping hot pizza delivered by Uber Eats. And those video tiles on screen are tiles of Iberico chorizo wallowing on that melty mozzarella bed. Search Frankamanka for easy ordering on Uber Eats. Don't drool, you're on camera. Check the Uber Eats app for geographical restrictions and availability. Lester Edward Eubanks admitted he was loitering on the corner of Mulberry Street, which ran perpendicular to Spring Mill Street, where Mary was headed. The teenage girl in Eubanks would briefly make eye contact, and that's when Eubanks decided he wanted to sexually assault the 14-year-old. He took his opportunity as Mary walked past him, grabbing the girl and pulling her behind a house in a darkened alleyway. He yanked up her shirt and pulled down her underwear. But because Mary started kicking and screaming and putting up one heck of a fight, Eubanks panicked. He didn't want Mary attracting attention, leading him getting caught. So he took out his 38 caliber revolver and shot her twice in the stomach before fleeing the scene. After that, he ran all the way home, between another alley and a house before turning a corner to his home, which he shared with his parents. He then got dressed and went out dancing. It would have been about 45 minutes later when he walked across where he left Mary, and he heard her withering in agony. He picked up a brick and he killed her. He then walked away like nothing had happened. Throughout his whole confession, he was emotionless. He didn't express any remorse for his crime. The most frustrating thing about this, Eubanks was a repeat offender. According to the Office of Sex Offender Sentencing, Monitoring, Apprehending, Registering and Tracking website, the recidivism of violent sex offenders is 56.6%. Even violent sex offenders who have had counselling and treatment their rate still is high at almost 43%. Eubanks was always likely to offend again, and what we know about violent offenders, they escalate. 
and the fact he only had recently been charged and was allowed out on bond, it's infuriating to me. This whole situation could have been avoided. He didn't seem to show any remorse at all, other than the fact that he was caught. Upon his confession in the courtroom, he was convicted by jury of his peers. He was sentenced to death. He was sent to the death row in the Ohio prison system. Everybody was happy. It was wrapped up in a bowl for a while. May 1966. The Dina family went through the painful experience of a trial, hearing what Mary went through leading to her death in graphic detail. Eubanks' legal team pled guilty by means of insanity. However, this was quickly disregarded by the judge and jury. There was no defence, no motive of why he did what he did. I mean, how could there be? He didn't know Mary and the Dinas. And what could a 14-year-old girl do to deserve such a horrific death? What could anyone do to deserve such a horrific death? He took the stand and testified to what he did to Mary and confessed to the murder all over again. He showed no remorse. He never even attempted to apologise for his actions to the jury or Mary's family. It didn't take long for a guilty verdict to be handed down, and he received the death penalty on May 25, 1966, which would have been some relief for the Dina family, to receive some justice for Mary. Eubanks would await his execution by electric chair at the Ohio State Penitentiary in downtown Columbus, Ohio. In prison, he was much like he was on the outside. He was just a loner and kept to himself and painted. He was seen as opinionated and cocky, so the other inmates kept their distance. Now, it isn't unusual for death row inmates in the 1960s and 70s to be given access to paintbrushes and canvases, or pens and paper or books, anything constructive to occupy their time. Eubanks loved painting and would even win awards for his paintings whilst on death row. Now, unfortunately, for reasons unknown, Eubanks' execution would be pushed back three times, and then in 1972, the death penalty was abolished when the California Supreme Court ruled the death penalty was unconstitutional. Another blow for the Dina family... Eubanks would have his sentence converted to life in prison without the possibility of parole. And even though it wasn't the death penalty, at least Mary's family could take some peace in the fact that he was going to be in prison forever. Eubanks was then moved to the general population. And although the other inmates didn't like him and kept their distance, Eubanks was a smooth talker and managed to win over the prison guards. He gave them the impression he was a good guy. So in late 1973, Eubanks was entered into the prison's honour program that would ultimately lead to his escape. He was a serial sex offender. Today we know that he's probably one of the last people you'd want to let in that program because of their recidivism rate or uh, you know, ability to reoffend. That was a real bad idea. In the 1960s and 70s, the US government changed their focus from permanent incarceration to rehabilitation and reform, and initiatives were created to help inmates prepare for life after prison. 
and to give them the skills to reintegrate successfully back into society. Those accepted into the Honour Program or Trustee Program, I have seen it referred to as both in contemporary news articles, but those accepted into this program were considered responsible, unlikely to re-offend and likely to be released. They would be given a day release from prison to do menial tasks like drive a truck between prisons with supplies or go to the post office or make a deposit at the bank or go grocery shopping. They also got to do fun recreational activities like attending football games, go to the Ohio State Fair or to go shopping to buy gifts for loved ones. Now, for reasons I don't understand, Eubanks managed to sweet-talk his way into the program. This is despite serving a life sentence without the possibility of parole, being a repeat offender for violent sex crimes, being a convicted child murderer. And as I said, violent sex offenders have a high recidivism rate, so he was likely to offend again. This whole situation is crazy to me and must have been so frustrating to Mary's family, especially with what's to come. December 7, 1993, Eubanks and three other inmates were driven to the Great Southern Shopping Centre in Columbus at 10am by two guards. The inmates were told they could shop for four hours and gave them instructions about where they were to return afterwards. They dressed in civilian clothing as to not attract attention. They were given money to buy Christmas gifts for their family. They did not have a guard with them. They didn't even need to stay together in a group. No one would have known that walking among them was a convicted child killer and violent sex offender. But by the time 2pm arrived, the other inmates returned, but Eubanks was nowhere to be found. A local warrant was issued, which was quickly upgraded to a national one. The FBI became involved and an extensive manhunt was organised but no leads could be found of Eubanks' whereabouts. Now, generally, inmates who escape are caught within the first few hours, but it soon became clear that this escape was pre-planned, and Eubanks had someone on the outside helping him. Official prison records showed that Eubanks' visitation went up substantially in the weeks leading up to his escape, from once a month to once a week. So it became evident he orchestrated someone to meet him when he was supposed to be shopping at the mall. Investigators did question everyone who came to see him, but none of them gave up any useful information. It would be 20 long years before this case would again be revisited. In the 1990s, the head of the detective bureau of the Mansfield Police Department, John Acudi, would look into Eubanks' disappearance. He had followed the case his whole life and was curious what happened after his disappearance in December 1973. He was shocked at what he found. The National Crime Information Centre had removed Eubanks' warrant. Quote, it had been 20 years and it was like no one was working on the case that we were aware of. He was just out there on his own and no one seemed concerned about it. Unquote. Chief Akudi could not believe what he was seeing, or not seeing for that matter. There was nothing to trigger on the system that Lester Eubanks was wanted missing. Nothing to alert police if he was pulled over on a traffic violation. 
nothing to warn potential employers when they took his fingerprints or used his social security number. Chief Akudi was infuriated and he knew he had to reopen the case right away. December 1993, finally the case received a lead. Eubanks' escape was featured on television program America's Most Wanted. This resulted in a tip coming in from a woman who not only knew Eubanks, but lived with him in Los Angeles, California, up until a few years prior. Kay Banks was the widow of Eubanks' cousin, and was his pen pal whilst he was in prison. The friendship turned into a romantic one, and Eubanks came to her after his escape for help. When police questioned her, she said she didn't report it at the time because she was scared of Eubanks. He would tell her that people were looking for him, and if they found him, they would kill him and her too. He would use intimidation and aggression to maintain control. Kay said that he made her feel guilty like it was her doing that he was in this situation. Kay would become scared for her life that Eubanks would kill her in a fit of anger. She would create a story to tell Eubanks that police had been coming to the house for him and wanted her to come in for questioning. This was all it took and Eubanks left the next day. It is believed, however, that Eubanks did not go far. He assumed the name Victor Young and got a hunting licence for ID because that's the only licence you can get without having your fingerprints taken. He secured a job at the Quality Quilters Mattress Factory in Gardena, California. We are talking about the 1980s now, and the popularity of waterbeds was at an all-time high, so it was easy to get a job without being asked too many questions about your background. Joy Spring, the manager of the Quality Quilters Mattress Factory where Eubanks worked. Joy remembered Eubanks as a quiet and hard worker. He rode to work every day on his 10-speed bicycle. If it happened to start raining, Joy said that she would sometimes offer him a ride home to his apartment building on El Segundo Boulevard, right across from the golf course. But the one thing that Joy could not shake from her memory was his cologne. He drowned himself in it, and it was overwhelming. Even being in the car with him for the 10 minutes drive would give her a migraine. But one day, out of nowhere in the mid-1980s, Eubanks quit without explanation and Joy had not seen him since. Unfortunately, police struggled to track Eubanks' whereabouts after this point. He could have been literally anywhere in the United States, from Texas to Washington, from Florida to Alabama. However, police were certain his family and associates knew exactly where he was and were helping him out with money to keep his real identity a secret. In the summer of 2003, police were able to contact Eubanks' father, Mose Eubanks, and while he was willing to speak to police, he refused to answer any questions regarding his son. However, interestingly, I did see mention in a YouTube video that Mose allegedly did say that people change and move on, It is believed he was alluding to Eubanks with that comment, meaning Eubanks must be still alive at this point. This was enough for police to apply for a warrant to seize Moses' phone records. And through this, they noticed a series of calls coming in from a centre for troubled people in Alabama. 
Detectives travelled there to interview people at the centre, and a man matching the description of Eubanks worked there for a time as a janitor. But as he had been this whole time, he was one step ahead of the authorities, and he had moved on. And unfortunately, that was the last update in the case. No new leads about Eubanks have come to light in recent years, but the US Marshal Service is not giving up. Authorities firmly believe he's living in the greater Los Angeles area, possibly married with children. He would be now almost 80 years old and hiding in plain sight under a different alias. Detective US Marshal David Silla, a member of the Cold Case Squad looking for Eubanks, said during the recent Netflix Unsolved Mysteries episode featuring the manhunt for Lester Eubanks, quote, this is one of those cases you just wake up with. It's just so disgusting, so unjust. We will continue to fight for Mary so that someday she will get justice when we're able to put Lester Eubanks in custody. Unquote. Authorities have been trying to gain Eubanks' biological son's DNA in an attempt to compare it against samples collected from unsolved crime scenes right across the United States in hope it will yield a match. They believe it is unlikely Eubanks has gone the last almost 50 years without committing a crime, or maybe offer some map to where he has been and his identities. Eubanks is now officially listed on the US Marshal Service's 15 Most Wanted list, with a $50,000 reward attached for his capture, the highest ever on offer for any one fugitive. Now, the US Marshals are currently searching for thousands of criminals. So to make the top 15 list, you really need to be the worst of the worst. An age-enhanced composite of Eubanks has been released, showing what he may look like now as an elderly man. This case infuriates me. An innocent girl's life was stolen at only 14 years old. A girl with a big heart and big dreams to match. Yet this monster only served eight years of his actual sentence. Mary's mother Cassie died only years after her daughter. Most believe it was of a broken heart. Cassie was so plagued by guilt and heartache in the time before her death, she could not bring herself to go to court to see her daughter's killer being sentenced. Her eldest daughter, Myrtle, went alone. Brenda Sue would also suffer immense grief and guilt following Mary's murder, blaming herself for not insisting to go with her sister, that maybe if she did, Mary still would be alive. Unfortunately, she too has passed. Brenda died in 2014 at age 61, never seeing her sister's killer again brought to justice. He avoided the electric chair. He avoided a lifetime in a prison cell. Lester Eubanks was allowed to walk away. What were they hoping to accomplish with this absurd program of taking up a child murderer to go Christmas shopping and not even having a guard stand beside him the entire time? It, it just is baffling. Lester Edward Eubanks is African-American. When he was last seen, he was 5 foot 11 and 175 pounds, with black hair and brown eyes. He has a huge scar on his right arm. If Eubanks is still alive today, he would be 79 years old. 
If you have any information regarding the current whereabouts of Lester Eubanks, please contact the US Marshal Service on 1833 378 7783. If you have your own thoughts and theories on the case we discussed today, or any case we talk about on Stolen Lives, please search Stolen Lives on Facebook, like the page so you don't miss an episode, and join the discussion group to talk about your thoughts and theories. You can also talk to us on Twitter, search lives underscore stolen, or on Instagram, Stolen Lives Podcast. If you like what you heard today, we would appreciate it if you share this episode on your social media of choice and subscribe and leave a positive review on your podcast app. Today's episode was researched and written by me, Ali. Hosting and production was also by me, Ali. Music is by Mayu. in front of the laptop tap tapping and click clicking clicking or clucking maybe clucking like a chicken a crispy golden chicken burger delivered by uber eats forget crunching numbers you can crunch fried chicken crunch crunch mm, crunch search mother clucker for easy ordering on uber eats take that numbers check the uber eats app for geographical restrictions and availability